0: has been trying to say from the very beginning and is the resounding answer is absolutely yes. He created humanity and, and in the garden and in the his creation the crown of His creation was people because He longed to have relationship and fellowship. He didn't need that He just chose humanity for relationship. And then we see um, in the midst of that He gives humanity a gift called free will. He wasn't going to force them to serve him. He wasn't going to force them into relationship with him. It was something that they had to come out of them, flow out of their heart. And so we still have that same gift today. And we see Adam and Eve. We see them sin. They rebel against God. Basically, they, they they take matters into their own hands. And we see that first sin, and that sin sets off a domino effect that affects all of humanity. But from that point, when they sin in the garden, you see what God's response was even in the garden, that His plan was always about redemption and winning humanity back into relationship and fellowship with Himself. And so the, the theme of Scripture is relationship, relationship broken, and God's response to relationship broken by restoring and redeeming as and coming to rescue us. All throughout the Old Testament, you see ups and downs, and the focus really was on the children of Israel. You see ups and downs. You see them at times serving God, but then you see them times where they fell flat on their face, and they said, you know, we don't need God. We'll do our own thing. We will go our own way. And God would always be speaking and trying to draw them. He would use prophets, and He would speak to them and say, don't do it. You will do it, God, way. God has a better plan for your life. But over and over, we see them taking matters into their own hands, and the consequences of that sin. We still have that same problem today. The tendency is to take matters into their own hands. We live in control of our own lives. I don't need God. I don't. I don't need someone steering me. I can do it myself. The ultimate end result of that is the end of a cliff. The consequences of sin is death, eternal and eternally separated from God. And so today we look at... Kind of a crescendo of the story coming into as we look at it, we've been looking at the life of Christ. The last few weeks we have built up to the the, the, the birth of Jesus and we looked at how he came in great humility. You know, we celebrate Christmas and this is that second big holiday about Jesus, but we celebrate his coming and how he was born in a stable. This king who was prophesied is born in great humility. It was a statement even how he came, that he didn't come with flowing robes and a clown making people worship him. He came as a baby, became one of us so that he could know us only. So we looked at that. Then we then we looked at uh, his message in, his, in, in the beginning of his ministry, and the way he did things was so different than what the people thought he should do. They, were, they knew the prophecies, the prophecies in the Old Testament said there was a Messiah, a king who was coming. And He's going to restore all things. And they had the hope of His promises. And they were looking with anticipation, saying, look, Then Jesus shows up, He starts His ministry at 30 years old. So He's hidden from that time He's working. And part of the time, so probably with His earthly death, those running carpentry. He's just, he's just hidden. But yet yeah, He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah of the King. And he begins his ministry, and he starts teaching with authority. He starts healing, and he starts doing these things that people go, "Whoa!" He, he looks you kingly, know, but he you know, he's very humble. He doesn't have robes. He doesn't look like our our, our, our religious teachers, the religious teachers of the day. You know, they were very pompous and arrogant. And Jesus came in great humility, yet he had great authority. But they had a plan for his life. They were they were hoping that he was going to take over, wipe out maybe the Roman Empire, take control, but yet he did not do that. He lived the life in humility and he ushered in this new kingdom. He said, this kingdom is not of the earth. This is an eternal kingdom. I'm pointing you to the, the idea of eternity. Yes, you live on the earth, but there is something greater. There's a greater reality and he began to usher in this new kingdom. And he began his ministry and he began to talk about this kingdom. And it was kind of an upside-down kind of thinking. He said, if you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be front, be the least. Don't rush and try to be the, the front of the line, but take a, a humble seat in the back of the line. And God sees your humble heart. And that's how He lived His life, and He modeled that for us. He said, "Do you want to gain your life, lose your life. And He would say things like that, ushering in this new kingdom. And this kingdom was not of the world. And it was shortly after that because his popularity, because of his feelings and the things he had a lot of popularity and the people were ready to follow him and at times they were wanting to force him to be king but he would not bring a lot of attention to that kind of thing and then they began to reject him and they began to piss him from, because they, he was not sitting in the mold that they thought he should. You see, in the midst of this He's very humble, but he also made some bold claims about himself. When we look at that, when we look at that, these I am statements of Jesus, the things that he said about himself. And it's important for us to look at that today as we look at that, we, we remember the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is he made some bold claims about himself. That he said this, he said, I am the bread of life. In other words, he's talking about, there, there's, a, there's a hunger in every human heart. There's, and he says, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the river of living water. I, I, I give you water, to will another thirst. I will feed you with bread that you will never be hungry. And he's obviously not talking about physical food and drink. He's talking about this eternal void that we have in our hearts, that we're always striving to look for something to fill that hunger and thirst of our souls. And you run around, you see it in culture, people running to this thing, to that thing. Something that will bring me some sort of contented relief in my heart, and Jesus says this when He's on earth. He says, "I am the bread of life." If you're looking to fill the hunger, you look no further than the "I am the living water." That's what He. That's another thing that He said about Himself. He said, "I am the resurrection and the life." Then we looked at one of those. one of the boldest claims he made in John 14 when he's about to go up and he's about to be crucified and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father except through me it's a bold statement he made himself exclusive to heaven that's not my teaching, that's his he made that bold claim that he's the only way to heaven there is no other way In John 8, he says, he even ties himself back to the burning bush. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And that's when the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were going to stone him to death because they knew what he said. They knew he was claiming to be God. And then the other things that he said about himself, I am the great shepherd of the sheep. I am the gate. I am the entranceway. You come through me if you want to find life. Again, over and over, he says these things and lived in great humility. And so because of this, they rejected him and they looked for an opportunity to get rid of him. But interestingly enough, that was also a part of the plan of God to put himself in the hands of those who would turn against him and ultimately kill him. You know, even his closest followers they struggled with this idea of him talking about that he would die and he'd give his life up. It didn't fit within their plan. He came to die and he came to give life. Why? Because that was all for you and me. That was his plan. That was the, 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 the story of redemption and rescue that God had in mind from the very beginning. And so, as we have, we we remember this weekend. You know, I, I have a hard time about celebrating Good Friday. It's not really a celebration, and it's a Good Friday. It's good for us. It was very bad for him. But we we remember this horrific death that he suffered whenever you think of the cross, whenever you think of that tortuous death, don't lose sight of it because we hear it all the time. We see the symbol of the cross. People wear it. I'm not saying if you have a cross, I just want hide it. I like the cross. But sometimes you can just see this thing that we hear over and over. We get so used to it. We get so immune to it that it becomes somewhat of a symbol. It was a symbol of torture and death that Jesus paid. It was an unimaginable death. The pain itself would have been unbelievable, but also, when you think about what he was doing, he was taking the sins of the world, they were heaped upon him. We're saying about it today, that he took God's wrath and judgment upon himself. God poured that out upon Christ so that we would not have to endure it. And that's the difference in between those who just simply receive Christ in a very simplistic way. We'll talk about that in a minute, just our response to Him. But people, will, people that will take on their own judgment, basically reject the gift that Christ did, and they say, I will take responsibility for my own sin. And that's why in culture, one of the great theological debates that so many people have a tough time understanding is how can a good God send someone to hell? My answer is always that He does not. He has made a way. The debt has been paid in full and you keep trying to pay the bill. He has opened up the prison door and you refuse to walk out. And so... This loving, merciful God pours His wrath on His Son for you and me. So He dies and all hope seems to be gone. You know, the crucifixion crucifixion was yet another way that Jesus was revealing this upside-down kingdom. He was laying His life down. It seemed like the greatest defeat, didn't it? But victory was on the way. But you know, at the time, and we have obviously the rest of the story, but can you imagine what they were feeling at at that time? Their hopes, the ones that were following Him, their hopes are in who He says He is. They say, we believe who you say. We struggle with that, but we believe you. And now He's dead and He is buried. Again, His disciples struggled. They were dejected. Remember when in the garden, when they came to arrest Him, what did they do? They ran. They, they left him at his most vulnerable hour. Even Peter, who swore to him that he would never deny him, denies him three times. I don't even know this man. So his closest friends are turning on him. They're struggling with how this is going down because they thought this is the time we're going to take over, and Jesus dies. He's dead, and they think it's over. They saw him tortured. They saw him die. There's no. There's no. There's no way out of this. Can you imagine what they're feeling? How long of a day was that Saturday to them? Were they in hiding, thinking that they could be next, holding their breath every time they hear the, the door knock or somebody around? They think maybe they're coming to get us. What do we do now? You ever have a Saturday season in your life? That all hope seems to be lost and you don't know where to turn and those disciples are living this out. Some of us, and for them it was that Saturday they were waiting and they don't, they, they, they know what he said, but is it a literal resurrection? A lot of things he said seem to not make much sense to us and we're having a hard time here, but all hope seems lost. Have you ever been in a Saturday season in your life where all hope seems lost? You don't know where to turn. No hope in your circumstances. You feel all alone. It feels silent. You ask, where is God? I'm just being real because I've been there. Church is for a bunch of broken people who are running to Jesus, not a bunch of people who have it all straightened out. Just, just a side for you. This isn't an uncommon part of life. In fact, it's very much a part of our life. It's the story of the people that we read about all throughout Scripture. You've seen and you've looked at lives as we've gone through the Bible and we've looked at these things. you see the lives of, these, uh, of different people in Scripture. So they, they have this similar thing going on. It's, what's God doing? I don't get it. Joseph, who has got promises and it's 17 or 13 years before the, the fulfillment of those promises. And in the midst, he gets all three He gets thrown in prison. And he's like, God, what in the world is going on here? But in Christ, we can have hope. But this idea of down time. is a part of living in God's kingdom. But don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. we can have hope in Him. Now, the hope is not necessarily an escape from our circumstances. But the hope that we have is a true and living hope because of what Jesus has done. And that's why the day we celebrate the day is so important. I will look at a couple of passages of Scripture here. The first is the event itself. And, you know, we, 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 we talked about this earlier, but I, I just want to look at it from two perspectives. One is the event itself where Jesus the risen from the dead. The next is this eyewitness um, testimony that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15. So let's look at the first one from Luke 24, 1-8. On the first day of the week, so there's a lot of hopelessness, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like light lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the man said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while He was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remember His words. This is a good day. Interestingly enough, that, God, that, that, that Jesus speaks to these women, these they go back to tell the disciples, You you think the disciples would be jumping up and down going, yes, it's victory. Did they do that? No, it's just, they didn't believe Him. I mean, it's, These guys are kind of humorous. I mean, I think it is a time of hopelessness for them, but they had heard Jesus teach so many times that they couldn't get their minds around it. That's one of the the, the times we talked about when when Jesus chose the disciples. He was even making a statement how he did that. He chose these broken guys, fishermen, tax collectors, guys that didn't have it straightened out, and I feel like that I qualify to be his follower. And I think that, that Jesus is making a statement through the guys that he chose. You know, one time he's talking about, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The yeast of the Pharisees. You the a little yeast goes into the dough. And he's talking about hey, that, that, that religious spirit that they, that they operate in there. They act a little religious and they go through the motions but their hearts are not really not engaged. And he says, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. They get in the a boat and the disciples start talking about, I think, I think really These are the guys that he picked. Isn't that cool? Do you feel qualified now, or the time where he's talking about and he's trying to be vulnerable with him? He says, "The Son of Man, I'm going to go into prison I'm going to be betrayed in the hand of sinners, and I'm going to die." I mean, he just—I mean—lays that out there. I mean, this is this is big, hitting stuff that you This is like opening up to your friend, going, "Here's some major things that are going on in my life." And it says immediately they were walking, and then the disciples like began to argue among themselves, "Who is the greatest among them?" You can't, you can't, think that stuff up. This is humorous. That's like you know, you're going, you're going to your friend. You go, like, I have, a I have some big news. I need to confide in you. I need to talk to you about this, and you drop it, just a gigantic bomb of an issue that's going on in your heart, and they go, So what going to outfit do you want. What shirt do you think I should wear? You know like, what are you talking about? I just threw my heart out there to you. Jesus chose these guys they were sitting in. Do you think that they would believe these women? They did not. In the book of John, it says Peter and John one to the tomb to see for themselves, and now they're, they're, they're kind of wondering what's happening. They they're still bewildered. He's not here. They're even along the lines of somebody stole his body. Because the thing is, they saw him torture. They saw him beaten. They saw his back beaten open. I mean, and that would be I mean, that would stretch your faith to think that we saw him bloodied and beaten beyond recognition he was marred beyond anything that I can imagine this is a stretch that he's alive it wasn't until he appears to them boom he's just in the room with them and they're like, frightened they think it's a ghost and he says I'm here give me some fish, let's eat. so they didn't believe they doubted they questioned you know what The point is this, God invites your doubts and your questions. He's not intimidated by that. I say this, if you are in a sincere path looking for truth, you will always run into Jesus. Because He said He is the truth. But keep looking, keep searching. Doubts and questions are now, let's look at the eyewitness account that Paul talks about. First Corinthians 15 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Once you receive and on which you have taken your stand by the gospel, you have saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I have received, I pass on to you, as of first importance. Notice what he's saying? This is number one priority. This is first importance that Christ dies for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Jesus and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom were still living, though some have fallen asleep. means they died. Then he appeared to James and to so all the apostles, and the last of all appeared to me as one abnormally born. Paul says, I didn't deserve it. He appeared to me and called me. See, Paul saying there were eyewitnesses. In other words, he telling in the church. He said, if you, if you can find these people, it's historically accurate that he rose from the dead. Some of these people are still alive, so if you don't believe what I'm saying, you can actually go find them. They'll tell you that they saw him. And so he's saying that there is validity to what this is not. This is not some sort of made-up story. He is really alive, and he has appeared to over 500 people So, why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Why is it so important to us? If he stayed dead, it would have undercut him being who he said he was. That he was God in the flesh. He wouldn't be able to do what he said he would do forgive us, we wouldn't have a chance to be forgiven, to redeem us, to restore us back to God, to rescue us. See, the resurrection validates everything that he was about. It validates his teachings, his life, his message, and most important thing is that his promises. It validates his promises. This the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, it's the, it's the history that we believe and put all our stock, our beliefs, and our trust that Jesus was who he said he was. If there's no resurrection, then we're all delusional. The foundation of our faith, you know, it isn't ultimately in the teaching of Jesus. It's not in His miracles. But it rises and falls on the fact that He rose from the dead. Listen to what Paul says. This is continuing in, in verse 14 of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 15. Paul recognizes this, and he's just very honest. He said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. In other words, I would go find something else to do. let break up this group and leave. So our preaching is useless, and so is faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses of our God, for we have testified testified our God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him. if, in fact, the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ are lost. It's only this life we hope in Christ are all people most giddy. And so Paul is saying everything that we're about, all the apostles that they put their life on the line, they were persecuted, they were arrested, and many of them died as martyrs for this idea that Jesus rose from the dead, and He is who He said He was. And He's saying if Jesus didn't rise, then Christianity's the biggest joke ever created. It's a fraud. It's a fake. Forgiveness of sins is impossible. No one has a chance of eternal life. But then he said this, if it is true, then it changes everything. It changes everything in all of us. All of our hope for eternity falls to the moment of Jesus' resurrection. Listen to what Peter says. To praise be to the God and of our Lord Jesus Christ in great mercy, who has given us new birth into a living hope. A living hope, and through the, resurrection, through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. How do we have a living hope? That Jesus raised from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish. The will of faith, the inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Peter's saying all the promises of God are, are, are based on this idea that Jesus not only died, but he rose from the dead. And so if there's a resurrection, you can have a living hope. And so the implications of the resurrection Jesus are massive and have eternal significance to all of us. And let's look at some of the implications of the resurrection. Number one is, if there is a resurrection, Jesus is who he said he was. That means He is God. His claims of Himself are validated. That He's God. He is the living water that He said He was. He that He pushes our, our thirst. He's the bread of life that fills the hunger of our souls. He is the way the Jesus life And the only way to heaven. He's the Savior of the world. He's the sacrifice for our sins. He's the only source of true life. He is our Redeemer. He is our Rescuer. He is God's plan to win us back. And again, this is what separates us from every other religion in the world. All those leaders, all those founders, guess what? They're still in their graves. They did not rise from the dead. Jesus is the only one that defeated death itself. Who came back to reveal that He was more than a man, that He was also God in flesh. So it's... Jesus is who he said He was. If there's a resurrection, it validates everything he said about himself. And again, this is, this is not just me preaching, this is stuff that Jesus said. Number two, because of the first one, because Jesus who he said was, the cross isn't at the end of the story. Now, we remember the cross. When we take him in we remember until he returns, we remember the sacrifice. But death isn't the end of the book. In Christ, we have a living hope, not a dead hope, it's a living hope. And so the cross isn't the end of the story. Number three, because of the resurrection, our suffering and our affliction is light and momentary. This is what Paul said. He said, my afflictions, my suffering is only light and momentary in light of who He is, in light of eternity. Compared to life in Christ, compared to life in heaven, compared to what He has for us, compared to the unfading glory of life in Jesus, our suffering is light and it's momentary. When you're going through something, when you're going through those hard seasons in Christ, in light of eternity is It's light. Guys, awake! this is good news. It's because you've heard it a thousand times, Don't so don't shut it down. Number four is our circumstances can be redeemed and used for the glory of God because of the resurrection. This is good news. That there, there was a guy that wrote a book and he included this phrase, and I've always kind of gravitated to it. I read this many years ago, but he said, in Christ, we become wounded healers because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the life of Christ, because of the living hope. And so he said, you can take somebody that's been an alcoholic and their life can be transformed. And i have seen people that have been transformed by, by the renewing of Christ in their life, that's surrendered life Christ, and an alcoholic now can speak to other alcoholics and say, there's hope. And they become a wounded healer. Somebody that's been abused can speak to those who have been abused and they can say, there is hope. Those who have suffered with addictions, those who are dealing, have been dealing with things, and they are transformed in the new life of Christ. Their circumstances can be redeemed and used for the glory of God because of the resurrection of Jesus. A life surrendered to Christ has purpose, and it can impact others. We can have, because of the resurrection, we can have hope, joy, and peace in the midst of despair, pain, and suffering, and hopelessness. That's what Paul says in Philippians. He said, "In Christ, I learned to be content no matter what's going on in our life. Even in times of... Remember what he said. He said we, we are we are pressed, but not crushed. We are persecuted, but we understand we're not abandoned. He's with us.'" We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. In the midst of despair, we have hope. And so the upside-down kingdom of Jesus then is transformed into our hearts and we can say, you know what? I'm going through a hard time. I should be depressed, but I have hope in my heart that because I have a living hope, because of Jesus and His upside-down kingdom takes residence in our lives. Number six is that We don't have to be dictated by our circumstances, but we can rise above them in victory overcome overcomers because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we have no hope of in a of this. Our circumstances don't have to dictate our lives. We don't have to live as God said to early, earlier. We have to live in bitterness. We don't have to live in anger. We don't have to live in unforgiveness no matter what has happened to us. We have the ability to take that back to Him and say it's very difficult but I give it back to you, God. I, I give you my burdens and He takes those burdens from you and He gives you peace in its place. And then last implication. Because of the resurrection, just as it was with Jesus, death isn't the end of our story. These bodies, this says these bodies are, are wasting away. They're fading, and although they're fading, there is a another. There is a greater glory that is coming. It's the promise of eternity, the living hope of eternity. if We have died in Him. We've been raised to new life with Him. That's why Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Remember when he's, he's giving them hope. He said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to defeat death. And I go to prepare a place for you. He said, if that were not true, I would have told you. In other words, I'm not trying to give you a fantasy. I'm not trying to just help you to feel a little bit better about yourself. Heaven is not some ideo- ideology that makes your mind be more peace. As the movie that is out. heaven is for real. And Jesus promised it, and because of His resurrection, we can say, "Well, it is real." And be, just because we die on, in these bodies, we live forever with for them in eternity in heaven, as they promised because of the resurrection. He taught about heaven. So as we're winding down here I want to talk about because of all that with the evidence in front of us, with all this talk about the resurrection. What is our response? Because there has to be a response on our part. This goes back to the garden. This goes down to all the purposes of every human being on planet earth. God will not force you to serve Him. God will not force you to follow the Son. God will not force you to receive the sacrifice of His Son, put your trust in His Son and serve your life. That is the response that He gives you this, this gift of free will that He invites you to. But we have to have a response with love in front of us displayed by Jesus, what is our response? Again, this is more the, than a holiday to fulfill our religious requirements and go to church. They call us C E N Christians. Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. And so it's not just some requirement that we fill, but it's an invitation to life. It is an event that we remember and celebrate that that, that has eternal consequences for for our saviors. So we have to do something with this information. We must do something with the reality of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So, how do we get this living hope? I'm going to look at a passage of Scripture that I think paints a beautiful picture of the gospel that is seen as we have uh, remembered this week and ha- actually this passage of Scripture is Jesus hanging on the cross. And in this exchange, we see this beautiful picture, just like if you remember the Old Testament, that you can see pictures of the Gospel, even in the Old Testament, and things that pointed to Christ. On the cross, Jesus is came to the reality of the Gospel, the payment that He is making and the reality of eternity. So I want to look at this passages, we think about our response. Luke 23, 32-33. You guys know this says the two criminals that are crucified with Jesus when he went there that day, there were two men crucified with him. Luke 23, 32-33. Now, two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucify Him there along with the criminals, one on His right and the other on His left. Now, two guys are crucified with Him. They were criminals. They are the lowest of the low. They are the worst of the worst. How do we know that? Because crucifixion was just one of many ways that they would kill people. And usually it was reserved for the hardest and lowest of criminals. It was brutal. The Romans knew how to kill people professionally. They were very good at it. And it was brutal to make a point. The crucifixion was set apart for these hardcore criminals to humiliate them and to bring excruciating pain. Because it was done in such a way... That they would, you know, they didn't always scourge them. Jesus went through the scourging first; he was beaten beyond recognition, and then they put him up on these crosses. But it was done in such a way as to invoke the most pain. And we don't want them to die quickly, but it was also humiliating. They would strip their clothing, and so they would hang them on this tree, completely naked, beaten and marred, and waiting to die. So it was to make a point of humiliating them and bring pain. So these two guys who are these criminals, they're the worst of the worst. And so let's think of the passage where they have dialogue with Jesus. Verse 39, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insult at him, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he looked over at Jesus in this unbelievable moment. They're both dying. They're both in agony. He just gets a little honest with Jesus. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then Jesus the said, said, to tell you, today you will me in so Did you hear what Jesus was saying? To this guy? you realize that this guy could not make amends for his sins? They could not... Jesus is giving him salvation at this unbelievable moment in history. But they couldn't get this guy off the cross and baptize him to make sure that he was okay. He could not do any good work. He could not give to a favorite charity. He could not jump out and help old ladies across the road to make himself feel better or do a ton of good work. He was up there in this honest moment, but he could not make amends for his sin. He couldn't do any good work to compensate for the evil he had committed. But this is the heart and the message of the Gospel that's on display in the cross. It clears up this cultural misconception. Here's the cultural misconception. Good people go to heaven. The Gospel says, no, good people do not go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Because what, what is it in society? I'm a good person. And we, we ask people, you know, sometimes, you know, how are you doing? Well, I'm, I think I'm a good person. Or do you have these theological say How do you know you'll go to heaven? Well, I'm nice. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. Well, then, comparative to what? I've done this thing or or that thing or I volunteer for this thing. It's not wrong to volunteer and do good works. We do good works not under salvation. We do good works because Jesus loves through us. We are are told in the Bible to do good works, but the good works don't save us. We do this because we love Him. So we compare and we say, well, I've done this or at least I haven't done that. Think about this just really quickly. On a scale from 1 to 100, how good are you? 1 being this awful. 100 being the best. So get a number in your head. Got it? How good are you? Now the question is, on that scale, what gets you to heaven? Some people go, well, I don't want to shoot too low. I don't want people to think I'm going to But I don't want to shoot too high either, you know, I don't want to people think I'm like Mother Teresa. So most people go, ah, fifty is sixty. Problem is is that's not good enough if you're just going to measure compared to what? What's the tipping point to heaven? This story undoes this type of thinking. There's a statement being made here, good people don't go to heaven because in reality no one is good. God bless you. <laughs> Jesus even said that. They said there's none of us good. But God is good. See, here's the contrast of the two criminals. Isn't it interesting that they have gone through this whole day with Jesus? You know this, this this trial that started. They have gone out there, and at some point they both began the journey with him to do this half mile hike up to Golgotha to be crucified. And they've been with him. They've watched his life. They've watched the things that he's done and said. They, they 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 they've been watching him. But there's two responses in this contrast. It, 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 it speaks to all of us. Because the forgiven one, he admits he's wrong, right? He admits that he's wrong. He tells the other guy, he says, we're getting what we deserve. And he recognized that Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. He's recognizing his divinity. He is coming to a revelation. but we don't know at what point This happened for this guy. Maybe it was when Jesus looked down at the ones that were beating him. And by the way, the ones that beat him and scourged him, the ones that treated him the worst, spit in his face, mocked him, beat him with their fists. He died for them too. And those sins. And maybe it was when Jesus said, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe that struck a chord in this guy's heart. But the other guy saw the same stuff. He saw all of this. And he had a different response. His heart was hardened. And he, you know, maybe at some point, well, if you are God, then save yourself in life. In other words, what can you do for me? What can you do for me? And this one that was on the cross, and he recognized who Jesus is in this moment, and he... He's, you know, he's saying I, 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 you are who you say you are this revelation of salvation he said you are who you in other words and also remember me when you go to to in other words I, I, I know that you're not going to say death and the other one was hurling insults at him Steve talked about this past last week but the Pharisee and the tax collector who were in the temple because our tendency is to compare ourselves with others and the Pharisee is praying to God, and he says, "God, thank you that I'm so wonderful. That I'm I am your gift to humanity. This is my this is my uh, translation. I'm your gift to humanity. I'm wonderful. I give. I fast. I pray. And thank you that I'm not like that guy right there. They're both in the same prayer. This, this all this comparison. In other words, think i 'I'm good. I think I'm I'm a 95.'" Possibly a 99. Maybe even a 100. And the other guy just beats his death and he's very honest. He's like that other people And of course, he Father, forgive me. I'm honest to you. Forgive me. It's interesting that Jesus is telling the story about these two guys because he said that, that one that he just said even went away justified before God. Only God can justify someone. He so said, The other get that his prayers were not heard he was just justified in other words he, it. he got salvation he understands the gospel because we're justified through repentance we admit our wrong like the thief on the cross we, we deserve this that's the part of the gospel is to recognize we are wrong that God is good and we aren't that all of us are a zero on that scale but God is 100. And it's His righteousness that gets us there, not our own. And this thief on the cross is saying, we deserve it. We, and, then, and then we have this honest response. God to give me, I am a sinner and I need the grace. He took responsibility for his wrongs. He didn't compare himself with others. And he was getting right with God. Because when you say, how good are you? You're, the comparison is God's holiness. So how are you doing on that scale now? None of us are being good. The forgiven one also asks for eternal help, while the other one asks for escape from his circumstances. Get me out of this mess. That's how a lot of times a lot of people approach Jesus. They approach Christianity. I'll give my life to you if you do this for me. I'm going through a hard time. If you do this, I'm all in, God. This is a part of our part of our, our, our mission essentials here at the church but Christianity is only understood through total and unconditional surrender to Jesus. It is saying, "I'm I'm not good, and you are good. I am a sinner, and you are the Savior, and I desperately need you." And the other one said, "Save yourself and I." I'll follow you if you do some sort of a miracle and get us out of this mess. Forgive him and trust that Jesus is who he says he is. Did you hear what he says? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That kingdom that Jesus has been talking about, that upside-down kingdom, this guy had gotten a revelation of that kingdom. Remember me when you... I know that you're a king. I see what's going on. You are a king. and you have given your life, I, I think he was overwhelmed. You are a king. You are who you said you are and you're dying for us. You remember me when you come into your kingdom because you're real. And I think you're going to live. I know. I want to be with you. He saw him as the true king and he humbled himself before that king. The other did not. So there's a contrast. Mm-hmm. See, that story in the Bible I think is interesting because Jesus could have been crucified by himself. But I think these two men come to us because we are one of two criminals. You can look at your neighbor and say you're a criminal. Some of you it might be therapeutic for you to do that but then follow it up then follow it up by saying So am I. because we're all criminals we are we are one of two of these criminals. make no mistake about it. We are not good. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But it all boiled down to this. It came down to their response to Jesus. And the same thing, it boils down to our response to Him. What will be your response to the risen King? Is it to try to figure out how good you are and how good you can be? It'll never work. Are you only interested in saying, I give you my life if you do this for me? It's so it won't last. Or will your response be like the one that Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You have got salvation. You understand the gospel. Or will you be justified like that one and say, Lord forgive me, I'm a sinner, instead of comparing yourself to others? Because that's the gospel on display right there. Jesus is the only way we'll have an eternal hope salvation comes through not us being good enough but surrendering our lives unconditionally to Him and saying, Lord, you are in peace i give you my life. And then He takes residence in our heart and begins to make us a new creation. And it's a process because you know what? Relationship is a process. But we go from death to life because He went from life to death to life. And we begin this process of relationship with him to walk with him because he loves us and He wants relationship to restore that relationship with God. Not being more religious with God, not going to church more for God, but saying I'm in relationship, I'm in friendship with you, and I'm going to live my life according to you. And then to gives you the good works to do because you love him. What will your response be? today. I want to end with a, um, it's, it's, a it's, it's a song that I think kind of sums up this whole day. But it's, a, it's going to be a video but there's lyrics. And I, want, I want you to just kind of take this in as you are sitting there before the Lord and I want you to think about what your response today will be before this humble King, the, the living eternal King. Let this song kind of speak to you as you are meditating on the words and you're thinking about the words, and I want you to think about your response to the can, I want to have the lights off, and, uh, and just kind of, as you are sitting along with God, let Him speak to you.